Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and thanks for joining us for Back to the Bible Canada. Today in our current series, Life Lessons from David, the Man Who Would Be King, Dr. Newfeld walks us through a pivotal moment in David's life recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 29. So let's listen now to Dr. Newfeld and go Back to the Bible. Every man or woman who lives a life filled with significance and meaning has struggled with moments in which it seemed like everything is now ruined. When Jesus was nailed to a cross, that's what his followers surely thought. And we, unlike Jesus, will find that often it is our own sins, our own mistakes and failures, our own short-sighted solutions to the problems that we face that militate against a life of significance. But David's life reminds us that when the call of God is on our lives, even our greatest mistakes and sins cannot keep us from the destiny God has ordained for us. Ephesians 1.4, chosen before the foundations of the world. Well, 1 Samuel chapter 27 represented a near cataclysm in David's life. We've seen how David, discouraged and fearful because of Saul's repeated attempts on his life in moments of despair, reasons that Saul is going to get him. 1 Samuel 27 verse 1 began, Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. It is that narrative that kept going on in David's mind. Even though God had saved him in the past, Saul, he thought, is going to get me one day. And so David made his way to one of the five royal cities of the Philistines, the enemies of Israel. There he sought refuge in Gath, the city of Goliath, and there he put himself under the protection of King Achish of Gath. And even though David managed a situation where he would live out of the eyesight of Gath and of King Achish, he was forced to lie to Achish regularly. He tells him he's been raiding Jewish settlements when he's been doing nothing of the kind at all. He's leading a double life. And just like what happens to all people who lead double lives, eventually there's a price to pay. Yesterday, as we studied 1 Samuel 28, David's double life comes to the forefront. A massive war is on the horizon between Israel and Philistia. Let's reread 1 Samuel 28, verse 1. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go with me in the army. And of course, David agrees. And then amazingly, Achish adds one more word. I will make you my bodyguard for life. And with those words, David's freedom to do as he pleases in his city of Ziglag comes to an end. He is permanently assigned to a king who is, in fact, a warlord committed to the destruction of Israel. Now, before the writer of 1 Samuel allows us to ponder this change of events, we are taken from that scene to the tragic and pathetic picture of King Saul of Israel, alienated from his God, consulting with a medium. But when Saul's pathos-ridden scene has been played out before us, the author of 1 Samuel takes us back to David. Let's read 1 Samuel 29, verse 1. Now, the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek. And the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. Now stop here for a moment and notice how the account is arranged. In chapter 28, the Philistines were pictured as being encamped in a place called Shunem. And in the next chapter, they're pictured as encamped in a place called Aphek. Now the reason for the difference is that chapter 29 contains a bit of a flashback. In chapter 28, the Philistines are at Shunem. Now, Shunem was the base camp or the place where the lines were drawn up for battle. It is located in the region of Galilee on the plains of Megiddo, Armageddon, or the Valley of Jezreel. 
If the Philistines win this battle, they will control the major trade route connecting Egypt in the south to Mesopotamia in the north. This is a battle over who controls the trade and therefore money and power in Canaan. This is no minor skirmish. This is all-out war for the future of the region. Now, in chapter 29, that is, in the next chapter, the Philistines, however, are in Aphek, about 50 kilometers to the south of the battlefield. That is why we know that chapter 29 is a flashback. Before the battle at Mount Gilboa took place, when the Philistine forces were preparing for their march to the battlefield, they gathered all their forces at Aphek. Now, verses 2 and 3. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? Now, we remember from our study of 1 Samuel that the Philistines had five key cities and that each city had its own king and their own military commanders. And so in order to organize into a fight, the Philistines had to coordinate their efforts. David has been made Achish's personal bodyguard, hence he will hold a key place on the field of battle. But as they're organizing, because Philistia doesn't operate under a single command structure, an argument ensues. Why would you take Hebrews to war against their countrymen? Now, no doubt they're thinking about the battle of Michmash, which was recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 14. You may remember that Jonathan's courage in that battle turned the tide in favor of Israel so that 1 Samuel 14.21 says, Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Now you can only imagine the chaos in the Philistine camp as they were having trouble figuring out who was for or who was against them. And that battle, as you know, turned out to be an unmitigated disaster for the Philistines. The Philistines did not want to repeat that. And so as they're trying to organize, an argument ensues about what to do with David and his 600 trained fighting men, all Hebrews. Well, let's keep reading, verses 3 to 5. And Agish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years, since he has deserted to me, and I have found no fault in him to this day? But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him, and the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David, of whom they sang to one another in dances, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands? You know, I'm struck by two outstanding features in this dialogue. The first is that Achish is completely convinced that he has no better friend than David. He has believed David when David told him that he was raiding the Hebrews and stealing their property. But in truth, as we have seen, he has been raiding the enemies of Israel and killing all of them, protecting Israel. David has been lying to Achish with such consistency and so convincingly that Achish is ready to go to battle and to entrust his life into David's hands. What he doesn't know is that David is a deceiver. Now, when I think about this, I think of the two kings that David has served under. The first is Saul, and Saul was convinced that David was trying to overthrow him and take away his kingship, even murder his family. But David was completely loyal to Saul. And the second king is Achish, who believes David is completely loyal to him. But in fact, David would likely have killed him the minute the battle was engaged. What kind of a man is David becoming? 
Who can trust him now? You know, the second feature of the dialogue in question is the rejection of the Philistine military commanders of David as an act of God. Exactly how would David's men have reacted when they first marched out onto the battlefield and looked across the line to see their brothers on the other side with the banners of the armies of Israel unfurled? Had David not in earlier years been enraged when Goliath had mocked the armies of the God of Israel? How would it have felt as he stood facing the armies of God and hearing the taunts and curses against them and God from his own side of the battle? Would some of the other's side have recognized David? And what would that have meant for David's future as a possible king for Israel? I love what one Bible teacher said. Having foolishly sought salvation through the Philistines, he now needed to be saved from his friendship with the Philistines. Well said. As long as there was no major war between Israel and Philistia, David's duplicitous double life would never be discovered, but once the inevitable happened, he would be exposed. David's dilemma reminds me that it simply is not possible to live in two worlds forever. You can't pretend loyalty to Philistia and secretly be loyal to God. Eventually, you will be exposed, and eventually your double life will be reason for shame. I'm reminded of Paul's teaching in Ephesians 4.25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth to his neighbor. Or in 1 Timothy 6.13 and 14, I charge you in the presence of God to keep the command unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, this idea of being like Christ, unstained and free of reproach, is the idea that when anyone discovers the truth about our lives, we are not ashamed. That is, who we are and who we appear to be, that both are the same. And at this point, David's life is not like this at all. Saul is about to consult a medium and be rejected by God and killed on the battlefield. And David is about to leave Ziglag and go to Hebron and join Israel again. But as David gets set to be king, he looks so compromised. We'll consider more of that when we come back. Just when it appears that David has found a safe haven in enemy territory under the protection of a Philistine king, we see that his deceitful life is catching up with him. After the break, Dr. Neufeld will help us understand the real implications for our own journey, whatever you've been through. God sees every day that is to come. More so, he steers time and space towards his purposes. Not only are our times in his hands, but his hand touches everything and everyone. That's the theme of Dr. John Neufeld's new book. Back to the Bible Canada is pleased to present In All Things, God's Providence. In this 190-page text, Dr. John teaches the providence of God. His book traces the thread of God's constant engagement with creation. Rather than a dry doctrine, Dr. John demonstrates how God's providence is the hope, comfort, and confidence for us all. So, for this month only, we want to make In All Things available at an exclusive feature price of only $5. Or if you prefer ebooks, you'll be able to download the digital copy for free at backtothebible.ca. To purchase your copy today, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. We might think that after the commanders of the army of Philistia had rejected David, 
that David would have seen this as a reprieve from the hand of God, rather than to be put into a situation in which his leadership in Israel would have been permanently questioned. They demanded that David simply go back to Ziglag and sit this one out. This should have seemed like an answer to his prayers. God was gracious while David was not. Hallelujah. But this does not seem to sit well with David. In fact, he's angry. I find it fascinating that after the Philistine army commanders make it clear that they do not trust David, a mistrust, by the way, that is very well founded, that Achish gives a long speech as to why he does trust David. You know, the reader of this account is left scratching his or her head, wondering how gullible Achish actually is. But Achish goes back to David and informs him he can't fight in the battle. And to our surprise, David protests vehemently. I'm reading verse 8. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? There are three ways of viewing this matter. One possibility is that David is simply covering his tracks, wanting it to look like he is disappointed when in fact he's relieved. And so this is all just a show to make him look good. Well, perhaps. But there is another possibility, and it's that he's probing Achish to discover whether the Philistine commanders actually have some information about him that lead them to mistrust him. Remember, David is keeping a secret he hopes they won't discover. Do they know about his secret life, and will they come back to get him after this war is over? And if that's the case, then we see a picture of David constantly looking over his shoulder. Well, a third possibility is that David actually had a plan for the war in which he would turn on the Philistines in the day of battle and inflict heavy casualties on them, perhaps even resulting in his own death. Well, the Bible doesn't tell us what David was actually thinking. It simply records Achish apologizing to David for this embarrassment and then informing David that there's nothing that he can do. The chapter ends by saying, and I quote, So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, but the Philistines went up to Jezreel. In other words, David was nowhere near the battle of Gilboa when Saul, Jonathan, and the Israelites were utterly defeated. He played no role in this battle at all. And furthermore, David didn't sit out this battle by his own choice. He, in fact, wanted to be there. Saul had driven him out of Israel, and therefore Israel could not rely on its very best military commander when they needed him the most, and the Philistine lords had disallowed him from appearing on their side. Even though David wanted in on the fight, in the end, we might say, God himself had blocked his way. And because we know the entire story, we know why this is. When David became the king, he needed to be cleared of any implication in the defeat of Israel. He didn't fail Israel in their hour of need, neither did he fight for her enemies. Furthermore, God had intended that this would be the time of Saul and Jonathan's deaths. And David may have prevented that from occurring had he gone into the battle. God would not allow Saul to be defended on this day, that God had sovereignly chosen to put this rebellious, disobedient, and godless king to death on this day. The Bible says in Hebrews 9, 27, that it is appointed unto a man once to die. I think the date of our death is appointed by God, and God, in his infinitely wise designs, would not allow Saul to avoid his date with God. But even as we are left to ponder the grand sovereign design of God in the events that are now being played out, we are also left to consider David's own spiritual and moral condition. He has now been humiliated twice in Philistia. 
the first time when he pretended to be mad, and in this second instance, when he was rejected by the Philistine army. Furthermore, he has made a habit of deception, and he has led a duplicitous life. Alexander McLaren thinks there is a lesson here for all followers of Christ. He says, Do you think that the world respects that type of Christian, or regards his religion as a thing to be admired? Now, the question that they fling at such people is the question which David was humiliated by having pitched at his own head. What are these Hebrews doing here? The world respects an out-and-out Christian, but neither God nor the world respects an inconsistent one. Now, perhaps we're being too harsh on David. I mean, after all, he's been hunted as a criminal while he was innocent. Slanderous charges were laid at him while he only sought the good of his king. He made a choice to go to Philistia, which surely reflected a lack of faith. But he is afraid. And after all, he has fought for his life for so long now. It's all that he can do. But however we judge David at this point in time, chapter 29 does not present David at his finest. He has become a deceitful and fraudulent man. He's leading a double life. And furthermore, since the Bible presents David as the forerunner of the Messiah, he hardly seems like a towering figure that we might think him to be. You know, in future years, David's own son Absalom would play a very similar role. He would pretend to be loyal to his father while all the time he was gathering a mutiny against his father, biding the time when he would overthrow his own father. Now, I'm not saying that this sin of necessity led to the one later in his family, but it does seem to me that deceit and lies and a double life introduces a man or a woman into a world in which the same sin not only helps them in their hour of need, but it ultimately destroys them as well. You know, while I was a pastor, I knew of men who worked overseas and had a mistress there and then would come home and pretend love for their family, hoping that their sins would never find them out. I've known people to pretend loyalty to two different sides in a dispute, only to find that they are rejected by both sides in the end. You know, whatever we make of David's life at this point in time, I do know two things. First, I do know that David did not imagine himself living such a double life when he first came to Philistia. That thing started to take on a life of its own, and that's also true of most people who lead a double life. They are amazed to find how far they've been capable of going. And secondly, I also know that God rescued him from his own folly. In the end, Israel was to suffer a horrible defeat and lie in ruins as its king lay dead, and David would move from Ziglag to Hebron and never again venture to pretend loyalty to a pagan people. That, I think, is the hope of every man or woman who's leading a double life. Begin, first of all, to see that liberation comes not from keeping the lie, but from finally moving out of the lie to the place of integrity, to the joy of being the man or woman you actually appear to be. You know, at this point in the life of David, I can't even begin to think of how gracious God actually is. God takes sinners and makes them into mighty men and women. David would one day be the king who would actually complete the command of God through Moses to take the whole of the promised land and make it safe for the people of God. David's faithfulness to his God and to his people would lead Asaph to say of David, with an upright heart, he shepherded Israel and he guided them with his skillful hands. And I'm reading from Psalm 78, verse 72. And here is the point of application. You can never be a man or a woman of significance until you finally turn from duplicity to purity of heart, 
to tell God, I'm tired of the double life. I wish to be the man or a woman that other people think that I am. And perhaps at this point, we should have a revelation. God has always built men and women who have lived lives of significance from those who have first sinned. And in the process of wanting to be all that God has called them to be, they have failed. And at some places in their lives, they have failed most miserably. And in the end, it must never be our failures that define us, but rather the grace of God who transforms us to define us. So if today you're living a duplicitous double life, take courage to come out of the shadows and become a man or woman of integrity. Don't say to yourself, if I'm ever discovered, God will do away with me. Say to yourself, if I come out of the shadows, my best days are ahead of me and not behind me. To God be the glory. Thanks again, John. You know, I think it's possible to actually grow to believe the lies we say or to justify our deceit. How do we protect ourselves from heading down that kind of road? Oh, such a good question. And I don't know that I have a, a really good answer for it outside to acknowledge that what you're saying is true. Once we begin to lie, we begin to live in a lie and the truth looks foreign to us. And people who do live a duplicitous double life tend to become used to that and can't even imagine a world in which it's not so. In fact, they begin to assume that other people must all be living the same kind of life that they are living. I mean, that's the great tragedy of going down the road of sin. We just don't see any possibility of getting out. I think, Ben, the only way back is for God sovereignly to reach in in mercy and in grace and to take away all the blinders from us and give us the truth. I mean, outside of God's intervention, I think the pattern that you've described goes on for a lifetime into death. So that's the, the horrible thing, but the good news is there is a God. Well, as we've studied this chapter in David's life, nearing the end of 1 Samuel, there is another very applicable life lesson for us. While not many of us will run into David's specific situation, yet as believers, we may often find that our beliefs do not always line up with our words and our actions. Our sins so easily deceive us that it's only by God's grace and placing our hope in Him that we can redeem our ways and truly learn what it means to live a life of significance. Join us tomorrow as Dr. Neufeld teaches from 1 Samuel chapter 30. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. I simply can't enter into the new year without expressing the entire ministry team's gratitude and awe for your exceptional display of generosity towards the Back to the Bible Canada year-end campaign. Your gifts, no matter the size, your prayers and encouragement, thank you for your partnership. It's critical in making this ministry possible. And it does so much to sustain and supply thousands of people with accessible, trustworthy Bible teaching. We understand that these are difficult financial times for many, which only makes the depth of our gratitude that much more profound. I've said it before, but I cannot express it enough that this ministry would not exist without your partnership. So again, thank you, and Happy New Year. On behalf of the whole team here at Back to the Bible Canada, we pray that this year you will be blessed with a lasting joy and peace that only comes from knowing and placing your trust 
and our gracious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.